Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're beginning a series called Raw, or Real Authentic Worship, and it is a series in the Psalms. One of the interesting genres that's become very popular uh, is sort of reality TV. And if you have a cable package or a satellite package, you know that just dominates programming now. All these little slices of life, slices into other people's lives that you'd have never understood before until that kind of thing began to be produced. One of the more interesting genres in reality TV is actually all these Survivor sort of uh, series. And Survivor was the early big hit. It was called Survivor. I never really cared about it, never really watched it. It was lots of drama. And of course, you were always afraid of getting voted off the island, whatever that meant. And more recently, there was a program that came out called Naked and Afraid, where it was really true survival. And they would uh, place people in extreme climates Uh, No shoes, no sandals, no clothes as they're trying to walk on 120 degree sand or worse and as they deal with hypothermia and they have to figure out how to stay warm and and create fire and they're given very little tools to do that or very few tools and they're risking dehydration. Many times they can't have clean water. They have to boil it. They're risking heat stroke and hypothermia at the same time in Africa where sometimes it's 120 in the day and it might be 50 at night. They have no clothes. The new kid on the block, I don't really watch it, but I think Pastor Steve does, the other guy who looks like this. Alone, alone. And there are no teams, there are no companions in alone, and that's part of the issue. You are alone in the wilderness. I believe these individuals are sort of self-filming. You do everything yourself. You never see another human. And I know what some of you are thinking. Sign me up. Sign me up to be alone forever. But I think COVID taught us that isolation is overrated. We are communal beings. We're intended to be in relationships both with God and with other people. And as much as we might talk about it when we might get tired of people, none of us really want to be alone on a desert island. We saw that in the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. That volleyball was just not enough community for him. We want to be connected to others. Zachary Fowler on Alone, I believe as the record, he made it 87 days. One of the issues in theology in every religion is how God relates to his creation and how his creation relates to God. Is he far away, unknowable, incomprehensible? Is that God? Is he far away and we really can't know him? We can't have a personal relationship with him. That side of God is theologically called his transcendence. Or is he close? Is he intimate? Is he knowable? Is he graspable? Is he perceivable? That side of God is called his imminence. 
Is God transcendent? Like we can't know him? He's, he's so far away and, and we can't really comprehend him? Or is he imminent? He wants to be close to us. And when we ask that question, the bottom line is we're asking the question, are we alone? Even if we know God, are we basically alone? Does God get involved in our lives? Or is he more sort of like gravity? We know he's real, but he's more of an impersonal force. You really can't know him. You can't experience him in any way. The incarnation, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, is actually the greatest evidence of imminence. The fact that the Holy Spirit resides within believers is another expression of imminence. But David wrote about this a thousand years before Jesus showed up, and he had a very interesting take on it. So I want to take you to perhaps one of the most, well, I'm sure it is, the most well-known psalm, Psalm 23. It's on page 401. Why don't we look at that together from the Bible in front of you? Even if you have a Bible, why don't you use the one in front of you? Because we're going to read this together. We normally don't do that, but we're going to read this together. So if you have another version, it's going to get messy. That's why I'm saying use the Bible in front of you. Or will a person next to you will be wondering, what's that person reading from? Or you might come to the realization you memorized it in the wrong version. Psalm 23, page 401, a psalm of David. Let's read together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So today we're beginning a series on Psalms. It's really just a bridge series. I'll probably come back to it in the future. Obviously, we're not going to do 150 sermons on the Psalms because uh, we're not going to do that. Anyway. But in the fall, I want to do a series. I haven't titled it yet, but it's basically going to be the idea of has God spoken or can I trust my Bible? That sort of theme. And, and that's what we're going to do when we hit our kickoff in uh, early to mid-September. And so before then, we're going to do sort of a series of selected psalms, and then when we have another break in the future, we'll pick this up again. But I've entitled it Raw or Real Authentic Worship. Because the Psalms are how people in ancient times related to God. And sometimes it's extremely raw. In fact, sometimes it seems almost disrespectful to God because one of the genres of the Psalms or one of the types of Psalms is actually a complaint to God about the way things are. And that makes some of you a little nervous, and I I realize that. But there is an honesty in the Psalms that you rarely see elsewhere in Scripture. I shouldn't say it. You see this throughout the Scriptures, but there's such a hard honesty in the Psalms because they're a form of worship. The Psalms are how people in ancient times related to God. They are Old Testament prayers, Old Testament songs, complaints, expressions of hope. In fact, some scholars are deeply concerned 
that what they've noticed in modernity is that the Psalms are increasingly unknown, unread, and unused, and there are scholars that fear that we're sort of losing our ability to know how we were intended to relate to God because of that. We don't hear much about the Psalms anymore. David, as you know, was a master at being open and honest with God. Now, many of the Psalms will have a little, what we call a superscription, and so it's a, maybe a sentence right before the text starts. So it's a part of the text, but it's before the first verse starts. And if you look at other Bibles, I think the Hebrew Bible might actually put a, a number at the superscription instead of at what we consider the first verse. And here's what's going on there. The superscriptions, according to scholars, were not original with the Psalms. They weren't a part of the original autographs. So we would say not, they're not necessarily inspired. They're not the word of God. The superscription, that little thing that says the Lord, the shepherds, uh, the psalmist's shepherd, that, that would be something that was added later on. However, it doesn't mean they're not accurate. So many times you'll see a little superscription that might have been written later, maybe hundreds of years later added, and it's telling us often about the context in which that psalm was written based on the history of the time as people recollect it. We don't believe it's a part of the scriptures, but they are informative and we should pay attention to them. Not as much this week as in the future when we'll see the setup for some of these psalms uh, based on their historical setting. So, we don't know when David wrote this, I'm going to assume it was later in life, and I'll talk about that later, because it sounds like someone who's speaking from a life experience, sort of with confidence in the future based on how he's been dealt with in the past. What's interesting is scholars say that most of the verbs in Psalm 23 are actually in the imperfect tense, which I know that uh, doesn't mean anything necessarily, but what it means is in Hebrew you could translate them in the present tense or the future and both would be acceptable. Either would be acceptable based on the context. So some would say this basically should be read, you know, he will make me lie down in green pastures, he will lead me beside quiet waters. It's written almost in the future. We're going to take a few moments to walk through the text and then how it applies to us. First, we're going to spend a lot of time here, so when you see that I've got five or six points and halfway through the sermon we're still on point one, don't worry. We're always done by two o'clock. First point, it couldn't be more personal. Yahweh is my shepherd. Now, one of the greatest dilutions of meaning as the Bible was translated from Hebrew to English, is the loss of the understanding or the meaning related to the names for God. You always lose a little bit when you go from one language to another, and translators try very hard to do a word-for-word or phrase-for-phrase translation, and they do a wonderful job. You know, you have the word of God. You can trust it. But when you go from one language to another, you always lose a little something as it relates to this word-to-word translation. And the names of God is probably one of those areas in particular where we've lost something. Because in the ancient world, names were used to describe character, to describe one's reputation or personality or maybe a situation that happened in somebody's life or the level of authority that they have. Remember when Isaac and Rebecca were pregnant? And uh, Rebecca's got uh, twins in her womb. And they come out. And first one comes out. And Isaac and Rebecca didn't have, you know, the little baby name book that you all had? 
Isaac and Rebecca didn't have that. And in their personalities, I would say neither Isaac or Rebecca were creative in any way. So they have their first little baby. He's hairy and he's red. So you know what they named him? Harry. Second name, red. Esau means hairy. Edom means red. They literally named their boy when they saw him Harry or nickname red. That was it. Brother comes out right after him. In fact, this is so cool. It's fascinating that they would include this in scripture because no privacy for mom here. But anyway, Jacob's coming out next. And as Esau comes out, it says Jacob's hand was on Esau's foot or heel. As the first one's being born, the second one is literally grabbing him like, hey, you get back here. I'm getting out first because in that culture, of course, the firstborn got twice the inheritance and a lot of other issues uh, worked favorably for the firstborn, which I'm so glad we don't have that in our cultures today. Anyway. I was the fourth of five. But nonetheless, nonetheless, so Jacob's coming out, and he's coming out late, and he's grabbing his brother's heel. You know what they named him, basically? You know, heel grabber. They named him supplanter or sort of manipulator, and that's what Jacob means. Interestingly, it kind of was his character as well. He was that guy. And then when God changed him, God gave him a new name, Israel. So you see, names changed. They represented character. All of this is true for the names of God. All these names of God are introduced in different situations, different experiences, so that we would be able to relate to him. Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does Jesus mean? Savior. All right, I hope we do better on the next one. All right. This is audience participation time. Jesus means Savior. Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Synonyms, basically, that he is the anointed one, he's the king, he's the Messiah. Lord means master. So Jesus Christ, our Lord, there's three different meanings for those names. Savior, Messiah, master. Old Testament names are a little more difficult because they're further removed in time. And there's so many of them. We're less familiar with their origins. In Psalm 23, the name for God is huge. It's everything, and it's, you'll see the word LORD in all caps. Now you say, LORD in all caps, what does that mean? Why do you, why do you mention all caps? Well, here's why. First, here are the names that aren't used. L, E-L, L, is the normal name for God in the Old Testament. I should say one of the names for God, it's L, and it means mighty. Elohim is a much more popular name for God in the Old Testament, simply translated God. So both El and Elohim, just both are G-O-D in the Old Testament. Elohim means creator of all. El Elyon, translated God most high, means that God is superior compared to all the idols in the world. Adonai is another very common word for God in the Old Testament. It's translated Lord, only it's not in all caps. See what we've lost a little bit here? These are huge distinctions in the Hebrew, but in the English, we're dealing with capitals versus non-capital letters. That's, that's, we're missing something. So Adonai is Lord with a large L and small caps, and it means owner or master. Lord with all caps is a key name for God. Yahweh, 
When the Hebrew was originally written, it didn't have vowel points, you just had consonants. It's four consonants, Y-H-W-H, four consonants. Yahweh and Jehovah are the same name for God. To get Jehovah, they basically Latinized uh, Yahweh, and they took the vowel points from Adonai, put it into the four consonants, Yahweh, and you end up with Yehovah. It's the same name for God. Yahweh, Jehovah. So don't have to be confused about that. That's the same name. This name for God was precious to Israel. In fact, this name was so revered that during much of Jewish history, when you were reading the scriptures and came to that name, they wouldn't say it out loud. Think about that. You know, you're in Sunday school and you're there with the the, the kids who are just beginning to read and they get to a word and you're thinking, well, they must be struggling with the word. They just don't know how to pronounce it. No, they, they actually wouldn't say the word. This comes from Exodus chapter three. Now, I'm not saying this is the first use of the word, but it's where God gave real clarity to how he wanted to be viewed, viewed and how he wanted that name used. He's calling Moses in Exodus chapter three to rescue Israel. Moses, of course, wisely recognizes, I don't want to rescue Israel. I was there. I killed a dude. I'm a wanted man. There's reward posters at every oasis between where I'm at and Egypt. Israel has been in slavery for 400 years. Doesn't look like they're getting away. Who am I? And he's standing there in front of this burning bush, which is God's presence in this bush, and God promised their deliverance. Well, Moses wanted proof, just like you. And he said, I want some proof, and I want to be able to tell the Israelites who sent me. So I want a name, and I want some proof. And God's answer was, I am who I am. Well, that doesn't sound like an answer at all. You know, I am who I am. But coming from a burning bush, it sounded more authoritative than that. You know, I am who I am. What that is in Hebrew is, it's the to be verb. It's is. It reflects God's self-existence. It reflects his transcendence. He needs nothing. He is who he is, which means he's all-powerful. He's not a created being. He's the only one who operates outside of creation. He simply was, he is, and he will be. That's what he said to Moses. Tell him, I'm that God. He said, that's to be my, and he uses this word in Exodus 3, my memorial name for all generations. That's to be the name that Israel thinks of me with. That would be my name connected to my covenant promises to Israel. That's the name that guarantees the plagues on Egypt that are coming in a month or so. That's the name that guarantees the Red Sea's gonna open. That's the name that guarantees you're gonna be delivered. That's the name that guarantees that the promised land will be your home, that the self-existent God who needs nothing, who operates outside of creation, is behind you. That God is all-powerful. He's transcendent above all, but that God, Yahweh, is my shepherd. You could stop the psalm right there, and there is so much power in that. In a world before Jesus, in a world before people were indwelt with the Holy Spirit the way we are, David speaks of God's imminence with such intimacy, the transcendent the self-existent one, is imminent. He's my shepherd. Powerful, personal. 
He will do for me all that a shepherd does for his sheep. Therefore, last part of that first verse, I shall not be in want. He's, he's all I need. If I have God, if I have the self-existent God who operates outside of every element of creation, if I have him, I've got everything. Now, it's interesting when David says, my shepherd. You don't, you don't really hear that in, in the scriptures much, the kind of personalization. You know, you hear... The Lord, our God, is one. Israel talks about God as our God. David doesn't say that. He says, that Lord, that God, is my shepherd individually. So we're going to walk through the psalm pretty quickly on sort of the text. My shepherd provides. What did a shepherd do for his sheep as David is sort of using this metaphor? He uses a couple of metaphors. We're going to begin with the one we're all very familiar with. My shepherd provides. Well, David was raised in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, I believe, means house of bread. So it's sort of a grain area that's pastured area. It's in the hill country of Judea. And he was a shepherd before he was a king. Kind of a pretty significant rise to fame there. And the whole psalm relates primarily to metaphors. We get to a third a little bit later, but it's primarily that David is a sheep and God is the shepherd. The Lord is the shepherd. And just so you know, and I'm sure you've heard pastors say this before, it's not a compliment. Now, David was raised in a sort of pastoral environment, and it was beautiful. There's nothing like a, you know, a flock of sheep out in the hills at night. But in all of nature, there may not be a more helpless mammal than sheep. If evolution is true, and I don't believe in macroevolution, I believe in microevolution. We see little changes in species, but I believe that God created species out of nothing. That would be my personal view. But if evolution is true at the macro level, sheep should not exist. They just shouldn't have made it. Survival of the fittest, natural selection, sort of laughs at sheep. If sheep are living during the age of the dinosaurs, everyone should be saying, you're not going to be here next week. I don't care who's protecting you. You're just not going to make it. Without fences or shepherds, there would be no sheep. Some say sheep are quite dumb, uh, and they're pretty blunt about that. Now, I don't want to pick on them too much, but I, I do want to say this, and I'm not picking on the females here, but I'm going to give an illustration of female sheep. And so, ladies, just give me a little break here for a second. So when, when yous are having babies... They position themselves, obviously, they're supposed to position themselves in the easiest way to push the baby out. And, and that would mean downhill. But often that doesn't occur to the you. So you can literally have a mama sheep die because she puts her backside the wrong direction while she's trying to have a baby and keeps trying to birth uphill and eventually exhausts herself and dies. That's what sheep are like. Now, I know some of you women are thinking, well, that's kind of what medicine was like until we got midwives recently, too. You know, doctors were always there in the easiest place to catch the baby. That's another issue. That was supposed to be funny. Didn't work. The Middle East, Bethlehem is this hilly, rocky, semi-arid country. My shepherd provides. Rains came mostly in winter and spring. And that would create sort of a few months of easy grazing. Like you could take your sheep anywhere in the winter and the grasses would keep coming up. But once that little rainy season, very short rainy season was over in winter and spring, the rest of the year's survival is based on the shepherd's knowledge of the region. 
You do not want to be driving your sheep or leading your sheep for miles and miles and miles and get them to a place that has no grass that you're assuming they can eat there. You need to know where are the few springs and pools of water. Talks about uh, water here in, in this uh, second verse, quiet waters. Some people say that sh- uh, sheep actually don't want to drink from running streams. So you have to find those places where the waters sort of pool up. Where are the few springs and pools of water? Where are the low spots in the valleys that still have grass because they still have moisture and dew? The shepherd has to know where he's going to lead his sheep for miles with nothing to show for it. My shepherd provides for me. My shepherd directs my life. Third point, my shepherd directs my life. Verse three, he restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Interestingly, some would say right paths. Not everyone interprets this paths of righteousness. With people, it might apply to that. If you're looking at the sheep, sheep aren't righteous or unrighteous. He guides me in right paths. He knows the shortest distance between two points. He knows where the dangers are. He knows where rest is. He does all of this. He's strategic in how he guides my life for his name's sake. Interesting statement for a shepherd. See, the sheep is the beneficiary of the shepherd's character. We're the beneficiaries of God's character. It's not all about the sheep. It's about Yahweh, the self-existent, promise-keeping God, simply being himself. He takes care of us, not because of us, but because of who he is, for his name's sake. My shepherd protects, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The terrain is full of cliffs, narrow gorges, wadis, which are basically dry stream beds that maybe get filled with water once a year. All these little areas, dark and shadowy, carry dangers from robbers, lions, bears. Shepherds were motivated to protect their flocks at all costs. They were very brave. Personal pride sort of dictated it. These were the tough guys of the era. And economic arrangements dictated it as well because shepherds didn't just take care of their own sheep. They cared for everyone's sheep. So a flock of 100 sheep and four or five shepherds might be 10 or 20% the property of those four or five shepherds and 80 or 90% the property of all the townspeople who are giving their sheep to those shepherds to take care of. It's an economic arrangement, sort of a sacred trust. And so the shepherd is responsible if a sheep was lost and he economically has to sort of pay for it, take care of it, give restitution. If a sheep was attacked and killed by a lion or a bear or something else, the shepherd had to produce the carcass to avoid having to personally pay for the sheep in the ancient world. So shepherds put their lives on the line. They used two tools for this. One was a, a staff, sort of a long pole that had a sort of crook on the end and they would use that to grab a sheep by the neck and sort of turn him. The other was a rod, just a short little club. Some say they'd be dipped in tar and then maybe burnt to to harden the end. Some say they might be studded with nails. But the shepherd had to protect the sheep. You know what happens when sheep are in trouble? They actually, you know, you ever seen like water buffalo in other countries? I think I think Africa's where water buffalo are from. I hope I'm right about that. When water buffalo are attacked, even by lions, they sort of create a line. They get in line, and they get their, their, their butts in the middle and their heads on the outside. They form a circle. They protect their young, and they're ready to kill 
lions over it. Do you know what sheep do when they're threatened? They do the opposite. Their heads are in the middle and their butts are on the outside. And the whole goal of a group of sheep under attack is this. Get your head to the center of the circle and scream, take him, take him. That's what they're like. They're just incapable of defending themselves. I believe they only have teeth on one side of their mouth and they have no canines. You know, top or bottom, but not the other. And no canines. They can't hurt you if they try. There is nothing in them that is capable of defending them. And so the shepherd, their whole existence depends on his protection. David had done this. Remember David, when he signed up to fight Goliath, what did he say? I can handle him. He's nine foot six, you know, 350 pounds. Looks like he's been in the weight room a little bit. But I killed a lion and I killed a bear. That's pretty significant. A lion and a bear. I'm, I'm guessing lions aren't huge in that part of the world, so just think small cougar. And think small to medium-sized black bear. That's not something you're supposed to take on by hand in either case. David had killed a lion and a bear. That was a part of the shepherd's life. It's quite a resume. But Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, sees every danger and is unlimited in his power to protect his own. And finally, he says, my shepherd communes with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there's actually a little controversy here in this famous, beautiful song. Some say that this is still a shepherd-sheep relationship. Others say, and I'm inclined to be one of the others, that this is now transitioned from a shepherd-sheep relationship to a shepherd-guest relationship. Now David isn't the sheep. Now he's somebody approaching the shepherd's tent at night, wanting hospitality. And I'm inclined to agree with that based on the language of the text. Hospitality in the Eastern world was sacred. And once you sort of gave somebody the cover of your tent, your protection, you put your life on the line for those individuals. It was a fascinating concept. In fact, this concept still exists in parts of the Middle East and and a little further east than that as well. In fact, there's a movie, Lone Survivor. Probably a lot have seen it. It's a U.S. military movie, and it's a true story. And it's a group of special forces going to, I believe it's Afghanistan, and they're on a special mission to take out one of the leaders of the Taliban. And this is a true story. They had to abandon their mission because they were discovered. They found some shepherds on the side of a mountain and knew we have to let them live or we have to kill them. And they knew they couldn't prove that they were Taliban, so they let them live, but they realized, now we got to get out of here. They radioed in to get extracted. By the time they were getting extracted, the Taliban were onto them. They shot down U.S. helicopters with missiles. A lot of people died. One man escaped and got down to the local town The town was not controlled by the Taliban. A man there exhibited exactly what we're talking about here. If you watch that movie, Lone Survivor, and look to the end of the movie, you'll find this Afghani man and his boy took in, Mark Wahlberg is the the movie actor, took him into his home, 
bandaged him, gave him food. The Taliban came to the village and this man put his life on the line militarily. That town defended this man against the Taliban. And that man, that soldier, has a relationship with that man and his son to this day. That was Eastern hospitality. When you let somebody into your tent, they are under your protection. You take care of them. In this, sheep, in this scene, the sheep are, are sort of down. There's probably a group of shepherds. They've got a central tent. Other shepherds are tending to them. The shepherd's tent is set up. And now David is no longer a sheep, but he's a visitor coming to this tent, and he is welcome. He becomes under the protection of that, of that shepherd. His head is anointed with oils and perfumes. There wasn't a lot of bathing in that culture, just based on the availability of water. So his head is anointed with oil and perfumes to deal with that. A table is prepared that's full of food. Wine is overflowing. My cup overflows. And David the traveler is safe in the presence of his enemies. Now some say this is still talking about a sheep. I, I don't believe that. I believe it is moved to this protection in the tent sort of motif. Some people believe this psalm was written when David was on the run. We, we don't know for sure. But some say the background of this psalm was likely David on the run during Absalom's revolt. David's been a king for a long time. He's been extremely successful. He's Israel's most beloved king even to this day. And then eventually his son revolts against him and David has to flee Jerusalem, flee his own palace. And that's why he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. No matter what is going on, God, because I'm connected to you, it's as though I can be enjoying a feast even though my life is being hunted. Do you have that? I don't have that. Not like I want to. So let's wrap up with a couple apps. A God for every need. Is my God transcendent or imminent and personal? So the reality is, it's not a trick question, but God is both. The word holy in the scriptures reflect this. The word holy means, one of the meanings of holy is that God is morally pure. The other meaning is that he's wholly different than anything we can understand or experience. It's almost like he's incomprehensible. He's, he's so far from us, so transcendent. So in the scriptures, we, the scriptures do teach this transcendence of God, that he almost, he's almost unknowable in a sense. But he also is personal and imminent. Psalm 23 is clearly emphasizing the imminent, and it's because God wants us to experience that. The word psalms comes from the Greek psalmoi. Well, there you go. That's not a surprise. But it means, originally, the twitching of the fingers. It's actually an archery term, so it's from, you know, so that's where it comes from the twitching of the fingers. Eventually, that archery term evolved into meaning the playing of a stringed instrument. And that term evolved into a song. So it went from the twitching of the fingers in archery to sort of the twitching of a musical instrument to a song. Psalms are sacred songs. 
from the ancient world. This book of 150 Psalms is actually organized into five books, and each one sort of has a refrain at the end of it. This was Israel's hymnal. These are the sacred songs from the ancient world that people would sing on different occasions. They're the cries of the heart that allow us to know how to connect with the personal side of God because God wants to be seen as transcendent, but also imminent and personal in the lives of those who follow him. Now, we're all different in this area. Many things influence how we view God, and many things in your life probably influence how imminent or personal God is to you. Here are a few. Your personality probably influences to this to some degree. How left brain are you versus how right brain are you? Your parents probably influence this because your view of God largely comes from how you were handled by your father. It, it's true your parentage, those kinds of things, largely influence how you relate to God. Your culture will influence this. Whether you're a male or a female will influence this to some degree. Women tend to be more relational. I hope we still live in a world where I can say women are more relational than men. Can I say that? Is that safe anymore? I don't know if anything's safe anymore. Although, as you know, this isn't a safe place for me anyway. Women tend to be more relational. It's one of the reasons guys tend not to like church as much as women. Because guys come in, and if we're singing the songs that are sort of like Jesus is my boyfriend songs, guys tend to put their hands in their pockets a little more. And like, yeah, I, I love him, but I'm not sure I'd say it that way. You know, guys are different than women. And that affects how we relate to God's imminence. Our experiences affect this as well. Some of us have to work on this aspect of our relationship with God. God, though, is personal. Yahweh is my shepherd. Some argue it's not even a sentence, but a name. That this should not be translated, Yahweh is my shepherd, but it's actually just a name for God, Jehovah-Rohi, or Yahweh-Rohi, which means the Lord our shepherd. Not even a sentence, just a name for God. Second, do I feel the comfort of a God who's committed to me and my future? David took great solace in this. Andy Davis offered the following. He said, I was reading Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage, and he was talking about, and this happened just a little south of us. I'm not sure how, how far Lewis, did Lewis and Clark get into Canada at all? Do we know? No? Steve says no. No, they didn't. They did not get into Canada. I don't think they did either, but they were just south of us here in the Rockies. Lewis and Clark's expedition, one of the chapters talked about preparing for the expedition. Lewis was meeting actually with the U.S. president, Thomas Jefferson, and they're going to be going from St. Louis all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and they were exploring the Louisiana Purchase, which had just been bought from Napoleon, but Napoleon wishes he kept that. President Jefferson and Lewis were talking together about the expedition, how it would proceed up the Missouri River, what they would need to cross the Rocky Mountains and descend the Columbia River to the Pacific Ocean and then return. The team would have to do this as a self-contained unit, and once the expedition left St. Louis, think about this. Lewis would be stuck with the decisions that he had made during the planning process. I mean, you've got your explorers up here too, Alexander McKenzie, David Thompson, Lady Jane Franklin, Robert Ballard, Samuel D. Champlain, these people went, some of them went all the way to the Arctic Circle area. They had to make decisions before they left. How many men would they need? 
with what skills, how big a boat, what design, what type of rifle, how much powder, how much lead, how many cooking pots, what tools, how much dry or salted rations could be carried, what medicines, in what quantity, what scientific instruments would they need, how many fishing hooks, how much salt, how much tobacco, how much whiskey. Think of all of that foresight and planning for every one of those great explorers to make the great unknown and perilous journey to wherever they went. Based on Psalm 23, God does all that for you. He's got that all planned out. We're intended to find comfort from that. The shepherd sees everything we need. And finally, have I learned that quiet faith, not resolution, is likely God's goal for me. And what I mean by that is this. I don't think David always felt this way. I don't think David got up every morning and recited his own Psalm 23, and it really came from the heart with all that emotion and all that feeling. Because I can think of, I think it was eight or nine years where David was being hunted by his predecessor, Saul. For years he's being hunted. And then after he's, his reign is nearing an end, one of his sons is overthrowing the kingdom and David is on the run. And I remember one situation, David gets to a Philistine city. It's in another psalm. We'll actually talk about that because it's just such a great story. He gets to a Philistine city. He knows because he's been killing Philistines on the side for quite a while. He gets there and he's like, you know what? I want to be accepted in this enemy territory and I think the only way I'm going to pull this off is if I act like a madman. So he's literally got spittle running down his beard, acting like he's insane so that they don't kill him so he can get entrance into a Philistine city because that's how hostile his enemy is from Israel as he's being hunted. I'm not sure that when he put his head down on his pillow at night after that experience, he's just quoting, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down, you know, it gives me safety in the presence of my enemies. But I do think it's after that, after one of those experiences, when he's made it through, that he wrote something like this. Singer-songwriter Sandra McCracken talks about an early morning flight that changed her perspective on her problems. And I think that's what God wants here, quiet faith. Not that all our problems are resolved, or we always feel this, but quiet faith. After seeing God come through, I think that's God's goal. She said, one morning I boarded an early flight for a music gig. My mind squirreled through the usual anxieties like old tapes on repeat. From a west-facing window, I found myself ruminating over some troubling circumstances that weren't resolved. It was dark as we ascended through heavy clouds. Most of the window shades were closed in the cabin. A little time passed and someone on the left side of the plane opened their shade across the aisle from me. The morning sun shot a blaze of pink light across my face, and the sunlight lifted my spirits. I looked back to see the view out the west side window. It remained dark. I had been so wrapped up in my tiny scope of vision, I hadn't realized the sun had crept over the horizon. One side of the aircraft was glowing with light. The other was still in the shadows. Perspective has a way of shifting our experience. On any given day, I could make a list of my anxieties, but the morning light shining on the east side of that airplane reminds me I could just as easily make a list of the good gifts that God has given me. Think about what she's saying. Same life every day. I can think about the hardships, 
or I can think about the blessings. Sometimes I choose to look out the dark side of the plane into the shadows. I look west. I focus on what is broken or needs repair. This is essential to know and consider the reality of our world, but I can get stuck there. No matter which window I look out, all the while I was strapped safely in the window seat of that plane, and all the while the pilot continued to steer the plane toward our destination. In spite of our shifting perspectives, we have a destination God has gone before us to lay out. It's a good plan for our lives. Psalm 23 is a song in Israel. I think the purpose is that when we can look out either side of that plane, we can look west and it's still dark, or we can look east and we see the light coming from God. The goal of Psalm 23 is to help us to look to the sunrise, to look to God and have that heart of faith. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that we would experience you in the way that David experienced you, that we would truly experience your imminence, your closeness, the personal side of who you are. We know that you're both transcendent, almost incomprehensible to us. Without your word, we couldn't comprehend you. You're transcendent, yet you are imminent. You are the one who created everything, and yet you are a personal God. David said, my shepherd, looking out for every one of our needs. Help us to experience that side of you in our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.